Losing Trump is probably the most faith-affirming thing that I've ever been through in my life because I truly got to see what the hands and feet of Jesus Christ look like. And they look like your friends. And God's face looks like your friends. He looks like the people in your life. Welcome to the Storytellers Live podcast, where everyday women share stories of hope. I'm Robin, and I'm here with Lindy and Katie, and we are your podcast hosts. Today, we are bringing you April Sullivan's story from Montgomery. She shared at a live gathering, and she actually shared last summer. But you're going to hear that her sound is a little bit off, and we worked very hard to mm-hmm. fix that. But you may want to turn up your volume in the car a little bit. Mm-hmm. But her story is so fantastic that we did not want you to miss it. I know, Robin. You know, the good thing is God's timing is perfect, and ours is not, because I do think it's such a good reminder of the power of community. And it's December. It's a month that's hard for a lot of people. And I just hope her story encourages you as a friend of someone to come alongside them as the hands and feet of Christ and encourage them during this month of December. And before April's story, we do want to remind you that we have some great holiday gifts on our website, storytellerslive.org. We've got a really comfortable Storytellers Live sweatshirt, a Your Story Matters t-shirt, and really one of my favorite gifts is the story Tellers Share Your Story mug that is coupled with a little two ounce coffee blend and a Discover Your Story journal. That's for $20. If you're looking for a friend gift, that is a great idea. So go to storytellerslive.org and shop today. Here's April. We have a winner. Y'all know we ran a contest for all of our Patreon members. For everyone who was joined and a member by the end of November, got registered to win a sweatshirt. And so Robin Darby, you are our winner and we are thrilled. So reach out to us, message us on Patreon or on Instagram or shoot us an email at info at storytellerslive.org and we will get your sweatshirt in the mail. And we are so thankful for our Patreon members for all y'all do to support our ministry. Thank you to the whole Storytellers team. I first started thinking about sharing. I went to the very first Montgomery Storytellers and they said, Amanda said, if anyone would like to share, let us know. And I approached Hillary and said, you know, I would love to share at some point. And then they, I think they have one and COVID happened and, you know, the world shut down. And so I just sort of pushed that to the back burner. Things started kicking back up, and Jackie reached out to me probably six weeks ago and asked if I would still be interested. And I immediately texted her yes without even thinking. I didn't want to chicken out. I knew that it was something that I needed to do and I wanted to do. And um, she said, okay, great. She said, think about, look at June 9th or June 16th. And immediately I texted back, and I was like, June 16th. I felt like with those date choices, (laughs) that God was encouraging me to do this because 12 years ago today, we buried my brother. And and that's the story I'm going to tell you tonight. And originally when I started like piecing this together, I thought I knew like the direction that I was going to go in. I was going to tell you all that story and then talk to you about prevenient grace, which is something that I learned about after Trump passed away and it's the grace that comes before and it just is it's the gifts that God gives us before we ever know that we need them and this is still about that oddly enough this week I was at BBS and yesterday the story was a story of the paralyzed man and the Ford friends and there's the paralyzed man who 
wants to be healed, and his four friends carry him to Jesus. They can't get to Jesus, so they climb up on the roof, and they dig a hole, and they lower him through the roof to lay at the feet of Jesus. And I thought, really, that's what our story is about, because it was like the friends and the people in our life that carried us through. And I thought about the man on the cot while he was praying to be healed, and he was praying to see Jesus. Really, the four friends made it possible. They were the ones that got him there. So they're a part of the miracle, too. So anyways, so I kind of shifted gears. So I hope that you can follow me in all of them. But And then also in preparing for tonight, I had a Zoom meeting with Hillary and Robin, and we talked kind of about how to think about this and how to approach it and all of that. And, you know, I told Robin um, and Hillary that I was like, I'm really going to be sharing the worst thing that's ever happened in my life up to this point. And I truly feel excitement to be here tonight. And I think that that is sort of a miracle in and of itself, that God has taken really the worst thing in our lives. And it's let excitement be an emotion that I feel in connection to it. I could kind of wrap up right there and say, (laughs) (laughs) that is the end of our story. But um, I really like to talk too much for that. So keep going. But most of you here know me. My name is April Sullivan. I am married to my wonderful husband and John. And we have three adorable little girls, Preston and Caroline and Anne Curran. Um, My mom and dad are Katrina and Cliff, and they were high school sweethearts. And they lived in a very small town, and they got married really young. And pretty soon after getting married, started a family. And they moved away from their family for my dad's job. And I'm the oldest. And then my sister, Ashley, is the second. She came about two years after me. And then my brother, Trent, was about two years after that. And while I like to think that all three of us were likable, Trent was certainly (laughs) beloved. He just was fun and charming, and everyone that knew him loved him. And I think for it's that's easy to do to someone who has passed away, but it is truly true. And in this case, my mom reminded me today that he told everyone that he loved them all the time. Like she was like, it was like he didn't have enough time in his life to tell people how much he loved them, even as a disgruntled teenager. He loved my mom. He loved my dad. And he loved everyone. <laughs> so we moved a couple of times when we were young. And then we settled in Crapple when I was in elementary school. My parents made Crapple our home. And they invested in our community and embraced it. And that community embraced us back. And I would say that there was, I have nothing but happy memories of that time. And there was probably a time in my life that I thought that I knew everyone that I did not. <laughs> and they did all the things. My mom was in junior league. They coached Little League. They volunteered at church, did BBS. You know, they just were a part of our community. And we did not have family that far away, but we didn't really have any family in town. So our friends truly became our family. And we joined First United Methodist Church and loved it. While we were there, like when I I guess I was in youth group and Ashley and Trent. Oh, wait, I need to back up. <laughs> when I was little, I used my mom, she had a dresser in her bedroom, and in the bottom drawer, she kept all of her favorite things. Like she kept pictures, and um, it was nothing exceptional, but it was like letters and notes and 
and things like that. And I loved to go in there like when she wasn't home and I would take them out and I would read them and look through it. There was a picture of my dad as a high school senior and he had written a note to my mom on the back that that she may not know it, but he knew that they would be married mm-hmm. and that they would have a daughter and it would be April. They would have a son because they would be drunk. And Ashley was obviously surprised. But like, <laughs> <laughs> still very excited. <laughs> and we did get the better name of the three of us knew our home. <laughs> um, so she, we definitely got like 17-year-old guy names. My brother. <laughs> so, um, Anyways, that was always really comforting to me, you know, that even though my parents started family young, that we were wanted and prayed for, and that my dad, even at that young age, knew what he wanted, he had that, you know, and family was really important to my parents, and I can't tell you exactly what they did, but we grew up very close to each other. We all my typical siblings fight, but I mean, I grew up with my two best friends, like hands down. And I wish that I knew what my mom did so that I could re- replicate it in my children, but I don't know. But we just were, we were very, I would say, exceptionally close. And I would say the only thing that I could pinpoint is that family was important to both of my parents. I would say if I asked, if anyone asked me what was the most important thing in both of my parents' life, I would say family. Back to being members of our church, we had, um, I'm going to tell you some stories that don't seem to make sense, but sort of time later. We had a youth director that left when I was in youth, and he was wonderful, but just like moved on. And then they brought someone new in that was just not a great person, but not a great fit for our group. And our church kind of pumped the brakes and was like, you know, we're going to press balls, we're going to take some time to find someone that is the right person for this role. And that's, you know, I was probably 16 at the time. And that felt like forever. It probably wasn't. But, you know, in my memory, we went like two years without without a youth director. But that can't be right. You know, we need to do During that time, all of our friends' parents stepped up and filled that role. So, like, my friends' parents stepped in and Ashley's friends' parents stepped in and her brother's friends' parents stepped in. And... I'm sure that they hated it. You know, I mean, dealing with teenagers is hard, but they did it for us so that our youth group wouldn't dwindle. And so during that time, I got to know those people like as people. They weren't just my friend's parents or they weren't, you know, just my brother's friend's parents that I would probably never really know. I really got to know them. They led our small groups and they took us on youth trips that were doomed and, you know, they did all those things. They didn't shower for days, you know, like in the mountains with us. And, and I now as an adult, I realized that that was probably a really stressful time for the leaders of our church. Um, and it was such a gift to me. I would say, you know, my parents made sure that I was at church, but you're not really listening to your parents at that age. But I would say those adults had a huge impact on the development of my faith. They find someone and they tell us about a church, they're super excited and they say, um, and at this point, I think all three of us are in youth group and they say, we would love for y'all to write the new youth director a letter. I'm just telling them we're excited. We've been praying for him. We've been waiting for him all the time. 
and we did. I don't know why we did. Like it wasn't like uh, you know, it's not like we were like rule followers or card writers or anything like that. But we did. We went home and we bought a card, and Ashley and Trent and I sent it to Frank. And so a little time goes by, and Frank both pass comes to be our youth director, and it's the first night that he's there, and everybody's like making introductions, and he says. He's like, oh, y'all are the McLeod kids. And we go, yeah. And he was like, I've been looking for y'all. You sent me a card. And it's the only card I received. And he, he just said, thank you, you know, so much. And he was like, I put it in my briefcase. And I know it's been 25 years since then. I know that Frank still carries that card with him in his briefcase. So, so we just sort of immediately have a connection with him, all three of us. and. Frank single-handedly had the most influence on the, my relationship with God. You know, he always found a, he always connected with me. He found a place for me when I didn't feel like I had one. Like he just was someone in that role that I could always count on. So a little time, you know, goes by. I go to college. I come back, and I um, Ashley goes to college. Trina goes to college, and. I came back to Prattville to be a teacher, and um, I am interning in second and sixth grade. You know, and my whole life, I thought I want to teach little kids. Like, they're so cute, they're hilarious, they're adorable. I want to teach little kids. And I was dreading doing a sixth grade um, internship. And I went to, so I moved on to that, and, and I loved it. I was shocked to find out, but I loved it. And I worked with a great team and a girl that I interned under, her name is Stephanie, and uh, we became best friends. She was just a couple of years older than me, just a very young family, but I loved her. She was fun, and she was just a good, easy friend. And that summer, my sixth grade teacher retired, and I took her job at that school, and this you know, friendship with Stephanie continued and we got to work together and it was wonderful. And then getting to know each other, I found out that Stephanie had had a brother who tragically died in college. And I was shocked. Uh, nothing about the way that she carried herself or the way that she acted let me know that she had this heavy pain, you know, and suffering in her life. And I remember apologizing to her, you know, I'm so sorry. Like I have sat here and you've let me complain about not about dates and you know stuff like that that is so insignificant. And and you've been carrying this really heavy pain um, that I didn't even know about. And she said, um, she said, you know, April, every pain is relative. Everybody knows the worst thing that they know. Everybody has something that is the worst thing in their life. And I, and I can't compare my worst thing to your worst thing. They just get to be our worst thing. So during this time, I meet my husband. We date for several years and we got married and Ashley is out of college by now, Trent's in college. And we, John gets, we moved to Birmingham for him to start his residency um, in emergency medicine. And we pack like a few short weeks, a lot of living into like we buy a house, we get married, he graduates from medical school, he starts a new job, I start a new job, you know, all of these things. It feels like our life is like fast forward ahead. And they're all wonderful, stressful, but wonderful things. I don't like to be married and it's 
pregnant. And about six months after we were married, we found out that we were pregnant with Preston. And we both wanted a family of, I don't think either one of us thought that it was going to happen at the six month mark. <laughs> but it did, and it was great, and everyone was really excited. And um, we got to go home and tell all of our family members in fun ways. And um, it was just a really exciting time. So, John and I celebrated our first anniversary in June, on June 7th, in 2009. One week later, our phone rang early in the morning, and it was a Sunday morning, and um, I got up and answered it. And he came into the room and he said, Hey, that was your dad. You need to get up. Um, your brother's been in an accident at work, and um, they're flying him to Columbus. And so, you know, my husband works in the ER, and then my dad is actually a medevac pilot, so he understands the severity of that also. John said, you should bring him pack some clothes. He's probably going to be in the hospital for a while. And I was like, okay. But John was really calm. And so I get up and I call my mom and dad. And I'm like, you know, what's going on? What happened? And I was like, we don't know. We don't know. We just got a phone call. Your mom and I are on our way to Columbus. But we can't get in touch with your sister. And my sister at the time was in Nashville. And she was in charge with her eventually going to be husband, but they had really only been dating not that long at that point. And <laughs> so um, my dad says, you know, get in touch with your sister, let her come to you in Birmingham, and we'll drive to Columbus together. And I'm like, okay, and everything seems okay. At that point, we're trying to get to national camp, and we're trying to get in touch with Robert, who we don't really even know at this point, but we knew Ashley and Robert work together, and we're calling people that we know work with them, and we're trying to track them down. And so they, Ashley, I can't remember if I talked to Ashley before I talked to my dad, but either way, I think that I talked to my dad first. My dad calls back and he says, have you, talk, have you been able to get in touch with Ashley? And at this point, they have gotten to Columbus. And um, but I said, no, I haven't been able to get her. I said, what is going on? You know, what is happening? It's like, April, you know, we're going to lose trend today. And so I collapsed in our kitchen. I said, please let me come out back down. Please let me go. And he said, you cannot, you cannot leave without your sister. And so we finally got in touch with Ashley, and I could not wait for her. It was going to be, you know, hours before she got there. And I got on the phone with Robert, who I do not know. And I said, you have to drive Ashley to Columbus. We figure out a way to get you home but she cannot go by herself and I cannot wait for her and he like the amazing person that he is says of course I will and so so John and I leave immediately and even though my dad said to me on the phone like Trina's dying my brain did not hear that like my heart my mind would not accept that like I immediately was like you know dad just said Nothing looks good. His blood pressure is really low. They can't get his blood pressure to come up. And I was like, well, we have low blood pressure. Like, every other family has low blood pressure. You know, I was like, tell the doctor about me. They know. You know, they know. But it was just like my brain would not accept it. And so John and I leave, and we are very quiet in the car. And I get, um, I maybe get a handful of text messages during that time. I have a my phone rings and it's a number that I don't recognize and so I'll let it go to voicemail and when I check the voicemail it's Freddie, yeah, our director and 
he says, I'm, April, I'm so sorry to hear about Trent. I have just gotten back from a trip. Um, I'm getting in the car and I will be in Columbus as soon as I can be there. And he said, I love you guys. You know, call me if you need anything. And I hung up the phone and I looked at John and I said, Is Trent dead? And he said, you know, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know anything until we get there. And I was like, but is he dead? Like, is he fine? And I was like, I don't know. We need to wait. And I'm so thankful that God let Frank be the person that made that sink in for me. Because it was like God was answering a prayer that I had not yet prayed. Which was like, show your hands in this. Where are you in this? And I, I felt like Frank was his Frank being really the deliverer of that message was his way of saying, like, I'm right here. Like, the person who has influenced your faith the most is right here. You know, is the first person I talk to outside of my family. So we carry on, and the whole way to the hospital, I'm ashamed to admit this, but I prayed the entire way that if God would let us keep trying, he could have my baby. I will trade you in heartbeat. Like, if you can take her baby, if you will let us keep her. It's a hard thing to admit, but it is certainly something that I agree. When we got to the hospital, we saw my uncle in the parking lot, and he told me that I need to prepare myself before I got up there. He was like, Trim, um, he does not look like himself, and your parents are not doing well. He was like, so you just need, you like, you're going to have to be very strong. Your sister's going to have to be very strong. And so we rode up the elevator with him and the doors opened. And I don't know if this is true or not, but it felt like a hundred people were standing on that floor. And I looked around and it was all people that we loved. I mean, a lot of them were my brother's friends, but it was like Bible school, you know, our vacation Bible school teachers and Sunday school teachers and coaches and my brother's teammates and our best friends and former teachers. I mean, and they all just didn't know what to do. And they'd gotten in the car and driven to Columbus. And from Prattville, I mean, in my mind, it was a thousand people, but, and I was overwhelmed by it. But I can tell you that for still to this day, it's such a huge source of comfort for me to know that people just, showed up because they loved my, I mean, us, but because they loved Trent. The way that I remember it is the doors kind of opened. There was a waiting room, and then we had to go down a hall, and then there was like another set of doors that you went through, and there was a nurse's station, and then the hospital room, you know, kind of around. And we walked through the, into the nurse's station, and standing at the nurse's station is Stephanie's mom, who is my friend that I taught with. And um, her name is Shelby, and Shelby had never met my mom or my dad, um, but I knew her, and she just happened to live in Columbus. And someone called her and told her, and she came, and she didn't know us at all, and she brought food and all the things. And again, it was like God was answering a prayer that I had not prayed yet, which was, are we going to be okay? And standing right there in front of me was someone who had already crossed that bridge, who had lost a son who had lost a brother in college, like at that, almost the exact same time in their lives. And he said, like, well, you will be okay. She maybe wasn't whole when she got on the other side of that bridge, but she was all pieced back together. And, and I knew that there was joy 
and happiness in their families. So again, it was just like a gift that, and I feel like God started doing those types of things immediately. It was truly the worst thing that could ever happen. And God was like showing up, saying like, I'm here. Like, don't ignore these things, you know? So I went into the into the hotel room, <laughs> into the hospital room, and my parents were in there, and I don't remember exactly who all else, but a few family members and friends. And Trent looks his neck down, he looked perfect. He had, um, there was maybe a stray scratch here or some grass maybe on him. Otherwise, he was, he looked perfect, but his face was just very swollen. And he had a traumatic brain injury. I remember that there was just fluid, you know, that was coming out of his ears, out of his nose, and out of his eyes. It was like he was crying. And we spent like the next few hours wiping his face, you know, talking to him. Um, I actually got there and she was able to introduce Robert to Trump for the first time. And we spent several hours, people like coming back talking to him, seeing him, and kind of rotating in and out. And during this time, more people are coming to the hospital. And so some time goes by, we all, Ashley gets there, we all get there, and the nurses and doctors are wonderful, but they tell us, you know, there's there's nothing that we can do for him. And at this point, only the medicine and machines are keeping him alive. And eventually, that won't work either. Like, eventually, it just... It won't be able to do, you know, his body will be so run down that won't work. And they said, you can wait for that or you can make the decision to take him off of life support. And we talked about it and we decided to take him off of life support. I can't remember who said this, but they said, you know, no one's going to leave the hospital until they know what is, what's happened, like what's going to happen. Someone has to tell them what y'all decided to do. And they said, you know, when... When he does pass, you will not want to walk through. You will want some time to grieve him in private. You will want all of these people at some point, but now, you know, it's not the time that you, that someone needs to let them know. And my parents obviously could not um, do that. And so Ashley and I went into the hall at the hospital and there were, you know, again, like I said, it felt like, it felt like we were at a concert. And we said, you know, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for loving Trump. And thank you for loving us. You know, we've made the decision at this point to take Trump off of life support. While we have loved, we love that you are all here. We will need some time when he is gone to process that. So, you know, please go home and come with us, you know, when we get home. And we went back into the room and at that point, anyone who needed to see Trump um, had been in to say bye to him. And um, so we started the process of taking Trump off of life And um, again, you know, this is when I felt like God had a hand in, like, I don't know what it looks like to take someone off of life support. I don't know how long that takes or what happens. And, but, you know, John, husband does. And, so, again, it was like God was saying, like, hey, I copied this is terrible, but, like, I'm not, you're not doing it by yourself. When, um, and me and Ashley, my mom and dad and Trent, you know, we would kind of freak out 
the a machine would make a noise or something would be funny or something would be and Don said, you know, none of that matters. None of the sounds matter. It doesn't matter what the machines are doing. We need to spend this time talking to Trent, being with him while he goes. That's what we did. We prayed with him. And he told him all things that we loved about him. And so uh, we took our hands, wanted our head on his chest, and listened to his heartbeat until it didn't anymore. And this was devastating. But again, I'm so thankful that I got to be in a room with my mom and dad and my sister and my husband when my brother went to be with God. You know, we were the last people with him before he left, and that is a tremendous gift. In the time after that, everything was a whirlwind. Um, I remember John making me stop to get something to eat on the way from home from the hospital, and I think it's the first time in my life that I've never tasted food. Like, food is delicious to me, but I was, it was like I had no taste buds. And we got, you know, we'd all come in different cars. I can't remember if Ashley rode with mom and dad home, but I know that John and I rode together and, you know, we left separately and went home. And when we got home, it was like God's army had been called into action. We came home and while we'd been at the hospital, someone had cleaned our house. Someone had cut our grass. There were extra trash cans on our back porch. There was food there. Uh, my mom's cousin was there accepting things but not letting anyone in at that time so that we could have a little time together. And we just grieved. I mean, I don't remember sleeping hardly. I know that my mom did not sleep. She would not go to sleep the first time. And then the next morning, she left at like 4 a.m. and drove to the place where my brother had his accident to be there. And then she came home and we started planning his funeral. And we called Frank and asked Frank to be a part of Trent's funeral. And that was such a gift because, it, you know, 22, you are, and in college, you don't really, you've had a church home. That is where you live. You know, Trent, was, he was in college. He wasn't, we had a new pastor. He knew Trent a little bit, but not well. But to have someone who, um, knew him and loved him be able to get up and speak about his life was such a gift he did not have to talk about Trent dying he got to really honor Trent's life and we I think immediately started praying for peace and we prayed for comfort and we prayed for understanding and I felt like we really needed to see God and feel him and know that he was there and we were, every one of us was desperate in our grief. Um, we, for the first few days, my mom, dad, sister, and I slept together in the bed. And then once the funeral was over, we would just fall asleep wherever we were. It's like we could not, I could not go brush my teeth alone. I was so sad and afraid to be alone. And we would Someone would like fall asleep on the living room floor or, and then one person would be on the couch and in a chair. I mean, it was, it, you feel out of control, but I still was praying for peace and comfort and understanding. And what we found were our friends, like it, 
all these relationships that we had cultivated, you know, God could not come and sit in the living room with my mom and listen to her talk about Trump. And God could not prepare food for us or, but Janet could and Cindy could and Marion and Angie and Cindy and Margaret, all of these people in an alliance, they could do those things for us and they did. They felt the urge to do it. And instead of saying like, you know, maybe they just showed up and they continued to show up. And, you know, I, losing Trump is probably the most faith affirming thing that I've ever been through in my life because I truly got to see what the hands and feet of Jesus Christ look like. And they look like your friends and God's face looks like your friends. He looks like the people in your life. And I think that God makes, he answers prayers and he makes miracles happen, but he does it through the people that you are connected to. And so I think it's so important if you feel that urge to do something that you do it. Because I really, I was, I was praying for peace and it came in the form of letters in the mail or someone stopping by when we were at rock bottom. Like for whatever reason, they knew that was the time to be there. It was such a gift. I remember the day after Trent died, I got up really early and I was sitting on the back porch and my cheerleading sponsor's husband showed up and he had coolers of ice. And I just remember thinking like, there are all these conversations going on in the background with so many people who are just, who are doing things that we don't even know need to be done, you know, but that is really how you like answer the call. You know, God is saying like, go and, and do, and they did. And that was such a tremendous gift to us. When we were, we also prayed for comfort. And when we were looking for passages for Trent's funeral, you know, we went to Ecclesiastes 3 and the passage about there being a time for everything, which is just kind of like a classic passage for a funeral. And we read that. And then just below that, Ecclesiastes 3.12 says, I know there is nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live. And if there's any verse in the Bible that sums up my brother, it is that. Like, he was happy and he did good. He was just good. He was a good person and he was happy. And so understanding started to follow that. So like, wow, Trent did not need 75 years to get it right. Like he was getting it right from day one. He was happy and he was doing good everywhere he went. I said earlier that I do think that God gave us some grace before to prepare us. And there certainly were things that he did. Um, in the months before Trent died, my both of my parents were the shack, which is about losing a child and then working through like your faith with that. And my parents worship in totally different ways. My dad is very like solitary in his worship. And my mom is very social in her worship. Like she enjoys the people and the fellowship and all of that. But they're not exactly taking like Bible study recommendations for me. <laughs> but they both read that book. Before that, we went to, after Trent died, we went, he had was living in a fraternity house at that time, and we went, and it was like, we could not wait to get into his room, to get in his car, like, dig through his things. Like, we find, you know, just, we're going to soak up all this stuff, and it was 
probably not known for being neat or tidy. And um, his car was spotless. There was nothing in it. There was nothing for us to do there. And his room at the fraternity house was spotless. And uh, we started, you know, we went through the few things that were there. I had four Bibles on his bookshelf that had just, they were not all kids. They had just like four random Bibles from home had ended up in the box, you know, that were found. My mom subconsciously was probably like, but um, tucked inside one of the Bibles was the poem, The Daft. And I don't know if any of you have ever read it. I don't know. Maybe you should look it up. But your fourth grade teacher had given it to him, and he had saved it all these years and tucked it in there. And it's about making the dash between the year that you were born and the year that you died matter. Because that's really what matters. You know, earlier I told you that I liked to dig through and read um, her notes and letters. And when she, I asked her today, which one, I know that she got this when she was pregnant with one of us, but I don't know which one. But my mom had folded in her letters a little handwritten poem that somebody had given to her when she was pregnant with one of us. And I close, I share it. She, it's called To All Parents. And it says, I'll lend you for a little time a child of mine, he said, for you to love the while he lives and mourn for when he's dead. It may be six or seven years or 22 or three, but will you till I call him back, take care of him for me, but bring his charms to gladden you and should his day be brief, you'll have lovely memories as solace for your grief. I cannot promise he will stay since all from earth return. But there are lessons taught down there I want this child to learn. I've looked the wild world over in my search for teachers true. And from the throngs that crowd life's land, I have selected you. Now will you give him all your love, nor thank the labor vain, nor hate me when I come to call to take him back again. I fancied that I heard them say, dear Lord, thy will be done. For all the joy this child shall bring, the risk of grief will run. We'll shelter him with tenderness, We'll love him while we may, and for happiness we've known, forever grateful stay. But should the angels call for him much sooner than we've planned, we'll brave the bitter grief that comes and try to understand. As Katie and Robin mentioned in the beginning, we loved April's story. Yes, it was a story of the loss of her brother, but it was so much more, as you said, just her, her faith being built through her community of friends and how people showed up for her. I think back to last Christmas when we lost my father several days right before Christmas and just the power of community that surrounded my mother and um, me and my sisters and, and just how it really does increase your faith. I'd never thought about it before, but when she tied it to the Bible story of the friends who brought the man to Jesus, and they did absolutely whatever they could to get this man in front of Jesus to be healed. And and that's what we're called to do as believers, to reach out to other people, to show up for them when they need us. It's so encouraging to me to know how to love my friends well, mm -hmm. to know that this date is coming up for you, Lindy, and to to just be intentional, because I think so often, you know, thoughts go through our head If I should do this or I could do that. But it's actually acting on that that lines up with what God calls us to do as living in community. 
And like I said earlier, I mean, this month is the month to do that because December is a hard month for a lot of people who have lost loved ones like you, Lindy. So, you know, as we end, I think that it was just so beautiful, the verse that April used from Ecclesiastes 3.12. And I wanted to read the two verses before that and just give you something to reflect on for this month. But it's Ecclesiastes 3. It starts with verse 10, and it says, I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. I thought it was such a beautiful reminder that April gave us through Trent's life and the example that he gave them and now gives us through the power of her story. April, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. And so we just want to leave you this week encouraged to go serve someone else, to go love someone in your circle of friends that needs it today. Have a great week. Merry Christmas. And we will talk to you next week. Bye.